Thank you for pulling into the Hope Station. I am your host, Diane Bells. The Hope Station is a place to hear amazing interviews, great transformational stories, and learn about the power of faith and hope to change your life. A podcast that proves living purposefully is possible. Are you ready for your own transformational story? Do you want to turn a new chapter in your life or career? There's hope. Schedule a free consult call with me to stop feeling hopeless and gain the hope you need to have the life you deserve. Information of how to schedule that appointment is in the show notes. You can also connect with me through my website, Diane Bells, uh, D-I-A-N-E-B-E-L-Z.com. Are you ready for another great interview? Hello and welcome to the Hope Station. This is your host, Diane Bells. And today I have a beautiful guest, Hannah Kolomine. <laughs> I said that right. <laughs> she gave, blew me a kiss, so I'm on the right track. She is a speaker, a teacher, a counselor, and a coach whose focus is on addictions and trauma. And today, Hannah and I are going to be talking about a tough subject. This month is all about addictions on the Hope Station because people stuck in addictions need hope. And Hannah is going to talk about the very difficult subject of pornography. So I don't know if children are listening, but I just want to give you a warning that uh, this will be broaching a difficult topic, but an important topic that we need to talk about in the sphere of addiction. So Hannah, thank you so much for pulling into the Hope Station and tell me a little bit, tell my listeners a little bit more about you. Thank you for having me, Diane. It's a pleasure to be here. I am originally from Kenya. I was born in the country in Kenya and had a wonderful childhood for the most part and always desired to be a teacher. In fact, my mother called me teacher. She'd say, teacher, breakfast is ready, teacher, (laughs) because everywhere I went, I was teaching. I taught chairs. I taught teddy bears. I taught my toys. I taught the animals. Everywhere I went, I was teaching. (laughs) And so I am honored to have the opportunity to do that as an adult, not only one-on-one, but in group sessions, in retreats and conferences. I just love teaching. I came to the United States at the age of 21 and attended college, graduated with a degree in occupational therapy, practiced and did hospice and rehab work and psychiatry for many years before having babies and staying home to raise my babies, which was such a great delight. I have two young men and um, went back to school to study counseling from a biblical perspective. And that has absolutely transformed my life. It's the best thing I've ever done. And so I thrilled to wake up every day and know that I can impact people who are walking a tough walk and infuse hope as you do, Diane. I I love it. You left out the part about your handsome husband. (laughs) My handsome husband. I have a very, very handsome husband. I met him just before graduating college. Uh, I was about three years in the States when I met Justin and he was just this 
dashing Scandinavian man, my friend Diane calls him. <laughs> we have since come, see all these years we bragged about, he's bragged about being Scandinavian, but we came to learn that Finland actually is not a Scandinavian country. They were, well, they were not Scandinavian, isn't that something? Anyway, <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. So he is an amazing man. This year we'll have been married 25 years. Awesome. Because of God's faithfulness. I was walking in the snow here just this weekend and marveling at the goodness of God because there were anniversaries of all those 24 that we've had where even the day before Diane, I was going, I don't know that we're going to make this anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> but for the grace of God, here we are making 25. And that is a ministry is what marriage is, is a ministry. It is. Well, that's that's for another topic. We'll have to have that conversation. But I really want to circle in. I had met Hannah before, and when she told me that she was addicted in her past to pornography, I I became very curious as to most people, number one, wouldn't reveal that. And the second is we think when we think of pornography, we think of men. And I was just so surprised and knowing that you were married and, you know, I, I just was surprised. So when I thought of, again, addictions, I had talked to Hannah about coming on and talking to this. So why don't you just go back a little bit of to how your addiction to pornography started and when it started? Like I said, I grew up in this beautiful setting, one of seven children, so busy household. And as I share in my book, Napping in Delilah's Lap, whose subtitle is The Pandemic of Pornography in the Pew and the Pulpit, I grew up where it was a busy farm. And so a lot of activity, a lot of, a lot of laughter and joy and really family oriented we were. Um, but mom was an alcoholic. Hmm. And so past a certain hour of the day, I have one of the chapters in my book says that mine was a happy childhood until 4 p.m. Okay. Because that's when mom would start to drink. It took me through my almost late teens to learn why mom was drinking. She was drinking because Dad had all manner of indiscretions in his life. A lot of which were sexual forays in a culture where that is very acceptable. Okay. But in mom's soul, that wasn't acceptable. And so she escaped to it. So they would have these harrowing fights. And so if the viewer is familiar with adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, right there is just two ACEs, addiction in the home and violence in the home, especially violence against the mother. And when you think of what that does to a child right. to experience that, it alters your brain chemistry significantly. And so, there are five ACEs in the original study. So just those two sets one up quite automatically for 
not only addiction, but lifelong health, physical health problems down the road, let alone psychological health problems. Okay. I remember as a child at the age of about nine or 10, somebody on the farm sending me to their house. We had several households on the farm sending me to their house to retrieve an item. And I was so happy to do that. And off I went running and I pulled up a chair. I've always been little for my size. So I pulled up a chair and I reached way up high to get the item that they needed. And I, while I was up there, I knocked something off the top of that armor. So I hopped back down and picked up the things that dropped. And one of it was a material, um, a magazine. Okay. And I looked at it and my jaw dropped because I had never seen anything like I saw on that magazine. And I turned a page and I was horrified and slammed it shut and put it back. But I'm here to tell you that I walked out of that house, Diane, a different person than had walked in. What was what the difference? The difference was the exposure to really graphic sexual material in it. And the fact that it was novel to me. So this discovery and the reaction that my body had that it was this rush that I couldn't explain at the time, of course, and questions and disgust and curiosity and all these emotions and thoughts flooding through my mind and me knowing I probably should not have seen that. So I took whatever I came to get, I put my little chair away, I shut the door, and I did not go bounding back to return that item. I walked away solemnly, pensively, wondering what had just happened. And I took the item and gave it to the person that was waiting on it and went and sat in a quiet spot by myself to think. And I didn't know what to think. I'm feeling these emotions, just you telling me that of what would have happened in, in your mind with all of that and the the paradox of it all of feeling all the all of these emotions all at once and like a nine or ten year old brain like how how do you even make any sense out of it you know and I, the fact that you skipped in and solemnly worked out you know that that was a pivot turning point in your life Absolutely. Absolutely. And Diane, what what's sad about that thought is here I am in the back country in Africa in the 70s, 80s. So think of that time and the lack of access really to such things, such material. Right. Fast forward that to this century, this decade. And children from the age of three, four, five, six that now have a cell phone in their hand that they get to get take to bed. And I compare, I think of my story and think of these dear children and my heart grieves 
because here I wasn't even looking for that material. I stumbled upon it. Today, we're setting up our children where they're being solicited. They don't even have to be looking for it. Huh, how are they being solicited? Oh my goodness, by being on TikTok, by being on all these forums that they're on, by being on video games, by being on so many forums where this material is now very blatant. Either by people fishing for you, or by conversations that the people that you're interacting with are having. The kids are sharing this material with each other. On the playground, the kids are texting and sexting each other. Perverts are reaching out to your children. I remember having a class here recently where a parent had come in to my class pulling her hair out, saying, my daughter is 12 years old. And she has been corresponding with a man that she was about to run away from home and meet with. Gosh, it's true. It's it's like we we think that that's happening to someone else in some place and not in our safe, protected space. But it's that that infiltration that comes in. There was someone I forget who it is. They were talking about this is like 60, 70 years ago, about this person, this thing that came into their house to infiltrate. It was the television. When you think of the television back then, you know, it was relatively innocent. You had three channels, you know, if you were lucky, you know, if you had an antenna. And now there's millions of channels, millions of ways for it to come into your home. And it's like this sleek, stinky slime that's all over everywhere. It's on every tablet. It's on every iPhone. It's on every computer where before to go get pornography, you know, you, you had to go to some pretty seedy places in town that like, and it was obvious what it was and people could see your car there. So you had to be pretty desperate where now, as you said, it's just showing up. It's showing up sort of covertly too, like it's hidden and then it's infiltrating. But to think like how you felt at that age and to know that, what is it? I I was reading numbers before that it was like, you're talking five and six that these kids are knowing about this. And what's the danger to it? Let's just go straight. What's the danger? What's the harm to it? This is natural. Kids should know about this. What's your response to that? I love having that conversation because you notice my my confusion after my experience where I felt I had no one to go to. Nobody had ever talked to me about this. It wasn't until a year, maybe two later, that mom gave me my very short, very awkward forum of sex ed. You know, (laughs) don't don't show boys your panties. I'm like... Uh, okay. (laughs) And that was that. (laughs) Going, wow, mother, if only you knew, right? But I'm not going to go there. Which speaks to our role in the involvement of children from a very young age. I posit that from toddlerhood, we are sexual beings. Mm -hmm. And so if you're waiting until 13 or 14 to talk to your child about sex, That ship sailed a long time ago. 
And so I love to encourage parents of young children to start their sex ed from toddlerhood. That as soon as this child can talk, I'm changing this diaper and I'm educating my child on the beauty and the normalcy of this. So that by the time they're four, five, six, this is a normal, beautiful conversation that we're having about the difference between boys and girls at that point, about the honor and respect with which you deal with your own body and, and the other uh, gender's body, about mom and dad and the privileges that they have that God has gifted them with to play and enjoy, play with and enjoy each other's bodies. So it's normal, it's natural, it's beautiful, it's playful. This is, this is a fabulous gift that God has given us. But we in the church have tended to treat it like a hot potato and say as little as possible, as late as possible, as quickly as possible and be done with the awkwardness of that. Why are we awkward about this? And well, so my joy is to infuse beauty into this conversation with children, regularity, fun and playfulness so that kids do know that they can come to you because this is a conversation we've had all along. And they're not just starting to come to you at 10, 11, 12, 14, 16. They're coming to you at four, at four, at seven, at nine. So if that had been my conversation, I would have gone to mom and said, oh, mom, I saw this. Okay. But, uh, right? And so what I find a lot with parents that come to me is shock and disbelief and discombobulation at realizing their kid has been on porn. You know, my 10 year old is on porn, or is viewing porn. What do I do? So I want to ask, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I want to ask two questions. Because yeah. I, when I heard you talk about the, the shame that you had, yes. and I'm thinking, you know, back, do we know that, you know, is there, we're wired for what's right and what's wrong. Do we say something's wrong with this? Or is it that other piece that you said that it, it's something that I've never seen or talked or heard about. So it must be something I'm not supposed to talk about. It's a little bit of both or what do you think causes that confusion in the kids? I think we learn shame. Okay. Because if I had stumbled upon that, as an educated and prepared child, I would not have experienced shame. I would have seen a body, an exposed body. I would have thought, oh, this is an exposed body. This is not appropriate. I'm gonna pick that up and put it away. But for me to have stumbled upon it, having heard words, I think the most common word I would have heard associated with such things is that's naughty. Naughty people do that. You shouldn't do that. So I, I've been taught that this is a shameful thing. Okay. And what attested to that was down the road when I would go back for that material, much as it had disgusted me and put me off, it started to become a comfort. So when we'd have grueling fights at home between my parents and I felt so lost I knew where I could go for contact. That is so interesting that that something that brought you shame and discomfort now is bringing you comfort. That that's making my head hurt. 
it would make your head hurt. And that's the beauty of these brains that God gave us. And when you think of gifts like dopamine mm-hmm. and the dopamine system, which is called the reward system. And dopamine rewards us for any function that we go about that creates life or sustains life. So when we talk about creating life, obviously we're talking about sex. So God gives us this gift of sex, whereby when we engage in that behavior, he gives us the wonderful flood of dopamine. When we do things that sustain life, such as eating or other activities, we also get a little rush of adrenaline, of dopamine, pardon me. And so the body is wired to reward you for pursuing these things. Okay. The problem comes in the perversion. And I say frequently, when God sets up a principle, the enemy sets up a perversion. And I like that so well that I'm going to say it again. <laughs> sets up a principle, the enemy sets up a perversion. We know that to be true, because I would think of that whenever something like the internet, okay, the internet came in, something that was created, and good could come out of it. And immediately, the perversion comes in. It's like, how does this happen? It's like, like, it just, so, but it's true. And I, I didn't have, I love, well, I love alliteration. So principle to perversion, but you know, you're watching the enemy come in and just sneak in and it's so slimy and slithery and so subtle at times that we don't even realize that the entrapment. And I think that that's part of it. So you're, you're nine or 10 years old, you're getting a dopamine hit because you're seeing, and I want to just, because you're seeing something that's in that creating bucket. Absolutely. So that's where we get dopamine hits when we're creating in other ways. Like if I'm, if I'm writing, I get a dopamine hit. Uh, Having this conversation right now with you, I'm getting a dopamine hit. And that's where those dopamine hits. And I'm just, because I'm, I'm just curious about that whole, our giftedness and our, our creativity, like why it feels so sustainable to us. And you just answered a question I was trying to figure out yesterday. (laughs) That makes me so happy. And here, here is how the enemy comes in through the back door and does that. When we interact like we're doing right now, Mm -hmm. or when you're learning something and you master it, you're learning. I'm, I've been working on the piano, and when I get, get a, a hard riff down, oh, that's a great dopamine hit for me. But the way God made us is that we get a small dopamine hit. Okay. What, what happens in addiction is we find a system or a habit or behavior or substance that gives us a massive dopamine hit for one, but for two, What happens is we are experiencing pleasure. Take the example of me learning to play the piano. I'm learning, I'm having to work and put myself out and and labor through a process. And out of that comes a beautiful result. Or I'm prepping a beautiful meal. And um, after the labor of it, 
I get the, my beautiful result of this be gorgeous meal that I get to enjoy with friends. Then I get a little dopamine hit. Mm. What happens in addiction is not only am I getting copious amounts of dopamine, but guess what? I don't have to work as hard for it. Oh, how powerful. Oh, well, yeah. that, that gets back to that primitive brain of ours that Absolutely. wants to reserve energy, <laughs> you know, get, be comfortable and go for pleasure. So we're, we're built. It's this crazy system in our head that we're working against ourselves all, all the time, aren't we? <laughs> Just Indeed. And I'm glad that you mentioned pleasure because I can't say enough how we were created for pleasure. Right. And I, I fast forward us to John's field trip that Jesus was so kind as to give him to the throne room in Revelation 4. And John is experiencing heaven. Mm. And in heaven, he hears the elders fall down at the feet of Jesus and say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power and praise. For you created all things, and for your pleasure, they were created. So we were created for pleasure, Diane. We're wired for pleasure. Mm. But here's the perversion again. The principle is that God created us for pleasure. The perversion is that the enemy comes in and says, my pleasure. Not God's pleasure. My pleasure is what I must become about. And so therein is the foundation for addiction, which is idolatry. That I'm not seeking God's pleasure. Oh, no, no. I'm seeking my pleasure. So we and become the idol. We become the idol. We're worshiping ourselves and finding pleasure for ourselves. Okay. Self-worship, self-gratification, self-adulation, Self, 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 self. Okay. So we can focus on this substance or that substance, but really at the core, mm -hmm. me and mine. That's a sobering thought. And I think the addict and the loved ones of the addict need to realize that. In what way? How does realizing that help the person who's who's living with the addict, but also the addict. How does that help them? Because what can happen is I could start to think that this is about cigarettes or this is about drugs or alcohol or sex or thrill seeking or shopping or social media. Right. That is only a symptom of the problem. Okay. The problem is this undisciplined heart Ooh. that desires to kick Jesus off the throne and occupy it. So I'll find that I can kick my social media, work really hard, kick my social media habit. But how quickly do I replace it with yet another one? Yes. You know, yes. And, and the research shows that very rarely is anybody dealing with just one addiction. Frequently, we're co-addicted. The person that's drinking is likely also smoking. The person that is on social media may also be gambling. 
may also be very, very rarely are we dealing with one specific addiction. So frequently when these agents come in, they come in holding hands. They bring they bring their auntie and their brother and their cousins and their homeless bum that was hitchhiking on the road. They're coming in. So, so, they, so almost we open the door a little bit for that pleasure central, you know, that pleasure pathway, I'll call it. Yes. Yes. And once that door is open, it's almost like an invitation. Come on in. Absolutely. So if you're pursuing, eradicating just one addiction, you're playing whack-a-mole. You whack this one, but you better believe someone's going to, another one's going to pop up elsewhere. Because we're not getting to the root. We're not, not closing the door. We're mm -hmm. just removed. We're just, yeah, I like that whack-a-mole theory. So I'm going to take away the drugs, but then I'm going to, and it could be caffeine. It, it's something else that we're seeking outside of ourselves and outside of God to bring us that pleasure. Absolutely. And you know what the powerful thing that I learned when I did my PhD, my thesis was exploring this whole concept of pornography. And I was shocked to learn what pornography means, not only in the Greek, but also in the Hebrew. Pornography means sexual immorality on the one hand. Okay. And on the other hand, it always always means idolatry. Okay. Sexual immorality then becomes a really powerful symbol for idolatry. These are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. I'll say there are two wings on the same bird. There are two horns on the same goat. Sexual immorality and idolatry and so sugar then becomes pornography how's that for my <laughs> the caffeine you just mentioned well it, it is when it is it's hard to to let go of these things so hannah and i pre-conversation we're talking about our you know our pleasure points and one of them is is sweet for me or just taste I'll say any you know taste and th that how hard it is to just let go of that and I think part of and I hope that conversation goes this way is trying to say how do I narrow that pathway of replacement so if I'm letting go of sweet am I going for another substance or am I going to someone or something else. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about working with addicts, what is what is your way of helping them see number one, how wide open their, that path is, that pleasure path is, and how to sort of close that that portal so that they can go seeking pleasure from the one we were created to seek pleasure from. Yeah. One of the things I love to do is acknowledge, like we just did, that we were created for pleasure. And so it is imperative that we as Christians learn how to control our pleasure. And that goes back to one of my favorite topics, which is the soul. And the soul is this entity that comprises the heart and the mind. 
And the senses, our senses are the gateway to our soul. So what you see, what you taste, what you mm -hmm. hear, all those become gateways to the soul. Okay. Which is where strongholds reside. Another powerful one that we uh, rarely talk about as a sense is movement. Movement is one of six senses. We are familiar with five senses, but we actually have six senses and movement is one of those. So it's really important for us to master our souls. I call myself the soul tamer or the soul whisperer. <laughs> because if you cannot control your soul, there is no hope. We can, we can behave outwardly. We can be on good behavior. But God is after the heart. So this is a heart matter, this whole addiction business. And my, my favorite analogy is that powerful, epic story in scripture of Samson and Delilah. Yes. And the beauty becomes, Diane, the beauty becomes when you catch Delilah for who she is. Because here is Samson, foretold, powerfully foretold by God to his barren parents, filled with the Holy Spirit, purposed to be the leader of the Israelites against their brutal oppressors, the Philistines. So what on earth is this man doing, napping on a Philistine woman's lap? Mm -hmm. So we have to realize that my substance of choice or my habit of choice is my Delilah. Well, I love that you're calling it both a substance and a habit because there's things that we go to that we, and it, and when we let go of a habit, it's almost crazy. Like I'm not drinking coffee in the morning. I don't know what to do with the first 15 minutes of my day. I'm serious. <laughs> Your routine. You, that, no. that routine like it it discombobulates you to the point that when like you're trying to, we're trying to rewire our brain every time we're trying to make changes Absolutely. and it's like spaghetti code in that that's what I, I call it in the it world spaghetti code it's just all this stuff thrown together and to yeah. unravel it it's like i i see the picture of clark griswold with the uh big ball of christmas light it's an impossible <laughs> task and we're like, how did, how did I get so wired up that I can't figure out how to start my day by no with starting with coffee? And I think what that speaks to is the compulsive nature of addiction. To become addicted, you have to have fallen for this compulsion. And the goal of a compulsion and the definition of a compulsion is you don't have to think about it anymore. It's automated. Ooh. You wake up like a zombie. You don't even need the lights on, you know, right where to go to the coffee maker, you know, where the, you know, you could do this with your eyes closed. So this is very automatically wired into your brain. You've learned it. You even have it down to cellular memory at this point. So to rewire that, oh my gosh. And for it to be wired, you've done it hundreds, thousands of times, of times. And so it takes as much 
to relearn or unlearn that, let alone to relearn a new habit, but for the Holy Spirit, who is so capable of invading even these brains that God created that are amazing. Or, <laughs> yeah, they are. Right? That he can come in and help us. I have an analogy that I use in the book that's a fruit analogy that sometimes he'll come in and do what I call a banana deliverance. <laughs> that you can just peel that banana and eat it. And it's done, right? Or he can come in and do a grapefruit deliverance where you have to put in quite a lot more work into that. Or he can come in and do a pomegranate deliverance. Now that one takes a long time, right? But like he does all those little seeds, yeah. Right? He does it differently in each of our lives, but he can come in and deliver us powerfully. That's how he delivered my mother from alcoholism. I was born a fetal alcohol child because she drank wow. through her pregnancy. By the time she found out that she was pregnant, oh my gosh, why stop now? Okay. But he delivered her in one day from alcoholism after decades of addiction. For me, I would say it was more of that pomegranate or that grapefruit deliverance that it took a little bit, but then pretty quickly we were done with that. Other people have to struggle with this for the get not have to. Other people struggle with this for a long time. And I, don't, I can't tell you what factors determine how quickly you'll be delivered. All I know is there's a Holy Spirit who is so capable and so able and so willing. Well, and, and, I, and I, I do believe that. I, I, I have my own miracle. So I know when you, you, know, you can get that quick deliverance and then others we struggle with. And then I go back to Paul saying, you know, I've tried and you won't remove that thorn in my side. And I feel like that those thorns are there sometimes to keep us humble, keep us close to our, our Lord and Savior. But when you're talking about these are our heart issues, our soul is our heart and our mind. So the Lord wants our heart and Satan wants our mind. If he can't have all of our soul, he's going to go for a piece of it, which can, you know, it just seems like that's what I'm thinking. Like God wants our heart. The evil one will work in our mind because there, there, because as you said, in our mind, it, it's a, it's a pathway to our heart. Our senses are a pathway to our heart. Here's how I would disagree with you there. Now okay. in the Western world, those three concepts of the soul, the heart, and the mind are, we tend to, to separate those. We see the soul as this you know, spiritual entity. We see the mind as our brains. We see the heart as emotions and feelings. Okay. The original languages do barely distinguish those. I think we're a culture that's very big on separating for the sake of an understanding and analyzing. Okay. But the original doesn't. The languages view those three entities as pretty much the same thing. Isn't that something? So that you can't, it doesn't make sense to say, you know, you can know in your head, but not in your heart. And we hear that a lot and have come to believe that. But that's actually not true. So this, this, this entity that I'll call the soul, but remember, it's all three. It's the heart, soul, mind comprises of three things 
It's our will, our intellect, and our emotions. And so for the heart, the soul, and the mind, it's all those three things. Okay. So the heart determines our will, which is our desire and our motivation and our determination. Our heart also determines our intellect, our thinking, our focus, our problem solving, our our um, judgments, all those things that we do with our brains, as well as our emotions, fear, love, sad, sadness, uh, joy, jealousy, all the emotions. So each of those three aspects touch on each of these three. So the soul, heart, mind is one thing. They're just three braids that end up being one entity. Yeah, it's like our our body is comprised of many parts, but it's still yeah. our body, right. one right. body. Right. So they're not separate parts. Well, when you're you're thinking of having you you work with people with addiction problems, and you had you had talked earlier about this thing called I think it's called um, ACE. Yes, the ACEs. We are, uh, yeah. So how does that tie into our into addictions? Because you've had this, you said our addictions and then our, our health comes from that. What are what are these ACEs? So adverse childhood experiences um, is what ACEs stands for. And uh, it could also be adverse childhood events. Okay. This was a study done led by Kaiser Permanente that had over 10,000 subjects in their research. And what they were looking to see were five events in life or experiences in a child's life and how that would impact them in adulthood. So those five areas were addiction in the home, violence in the home, Abuse of other kinds, such as physical abuse, neglect was another big one. And so what the study showed was that when children were exposed to these adverse experiences as children, wow, it was remarkable. And this was a medical study. It was remarkable that people who had the more ACEs you'd experienced, the more likely you were to have a heart attack later in life to have a stroke later in life, to be obese, to be diabetic. And so it was a study that showed the relationship between what one experiences as a child and the health conditions that can result from them. They also touched on uh, uh, mental conditions and mental health, things like depression, anxiety, as a result of one ex what one experienced as a child. Now, the ACEs have since been developed and grown significantly. Uh, other people have replicated that study and added more factors on top of the five. So things like racial injustice have been added to some ACEs. Things, um, and, the, and those also reflect and show the same results later in life, including addiction. And so ACEs are really powerful. And I love to go there with my 
clients is to explore what did you experience as a child and to educate them and educate myself on how those experiences transformed them from the inside out. And really that's what trauma is as well. Well, I have and, four of them. I, I don't know if I miss one. You said addictions, violence, abuse, abuse, neglect. Addiction in the home. Okay. Violence, particularly violence against the mother. Okay. Abuse. And that's every, anywhere from physical abuse, sexual abuse, psychological abuse. Neglect by which we mean emotional or physical neglect and household dysfunction. Okay. So incarceration, particularly of a parent, divorce and separation, substance abuse, we'd, we'd already touched on. Um, so these are factors that predict poor health outcomes for an adult down the road, physically and psychologically. Okay. So, so we're talking. And you're saying that there's a tie in that it's all, this is considered trauma for in your childhood, any of these, and you, you can understand that. And with that, we were more prone to have addictions because of this. Absolutely. Because we're we're looking for comfort, we're looking for solace, we're looking for pleasure, we're looking to escape wherever we're at. And that, that's what most of these are. It's an escape from our present state to another state. And you nailed it, Diane, because as human beings, all of our behavior is very goal-driven. And the two overarching goals in everything that we do is to pursue pleasure and to escape pain. Those are the two things we're always about. Pursue pleasure, escape pain. So these are very painful experiences for a child. Right. And it seems that even into adulthood, children are try adults are trying to mitigate or heal or recover from these horrific experiences that they might have had as children. They follow us clear into adulthood whether we like it or not. Well, sometimes it, it's something that might not even, if, if we're peeling back the banana peel a little bit, it could be something that's really not, as, a, as an adult, we would see as being traumatic, but as a child, we would. And I remember watching the movie, The Three Faces of Eve. It's an older movie with Joanne Woodward that this woman had multiple personality disorders. And when the psychiatrist or psychologist was peeling back the onions, the traumatic experience is she didn't want to see her grandparent had died and her mother wanted that child to see that, that grandparent in the coffin. That produced trauma to her that, you know, we don't know what it is. It's sort of like, I, I, I need to escape that. I don't want to see that. I don't want to feel that. And at times, I don't want to feel like, oh, gosh, parents are awful and they cause these on children. Sometimes it's just a circumstance that that's a little bit, we don't even realize that we're, we're doing that. It could be 
uh, your mother's too busy or your, your dad's trying to work. And as kids, work seeing it as something different than it really is. Could that be part of it too? Is, you know, it's still stuck in there and we have to figure out what, what's the root of all of it, that it might not be something as terrible as some of these things you've listed. It could be something just painful. It really is. We, uh, trauma is, trauma is also threefold. We seem to be talking a lot about three, threes. Trauma is threefold. Trauma is an experience or an injury that happens to us. Okay. So, uh, that's the first piece. The second piece with trauma is that it is the wound, physical or psychological, that results from that first aspect. Okay. The third aspect is our reaction. to the first two, our reaction to the experience and our reaction to the wound and how we choose to deal with it. Well, that's where you can have people growing up in the same household and have a whole different way that they're seeing what had happened because of their own reaction, their own makeup, their own emotional belief system or whatever. Some people are much more gentle and other people tend to have a little, yeah, Right. Okay. Right. Or you'll have someone growing up in an alcoholic home or an abusive home, and one child determines, I'm never going to do that, and is successful in doing so. Whereas another one goes down the exact same path because that's what they know. And so trauma is very curious that way as far as the reactions that people have when they run out of resources to handle something so big that has come at them. So it's an overwhelming, it's an overwhelming of the system, the coping mechanisms and coping systems really is what trauma is about. It's like this, whatever's happening over here is too much for me. Then I'm traumatized. Well, here, here's another thing too, is that that exposure can also cause the addiction. So this is where we don't realize your your exposure to that uh, pornographic material, just as you said, it opened up that portal, that pathway for the addiction to sort of take over. But what are some of the things that you're doing, Hannah, to help people heal from this? I'll share my story, if I may, of what that looked like. Please. What that looked like in my life was taking a walk with a friend on a cold February morning. We I live close to a lake and we were walking by this lake with this friend that I hadn't seen in a long time. She's about 20 years older than I am. And as we were walking, she was walking in front of me and it was a single little narrow path. And she shared how in previous years, she had struggled with same-sex attraction. I'm walking with this woman who's one of the leaders in my church, who's definitely a spiritual uh, senior of mine, someone whose life I've admired for so many years, who's been happily married for many years. And it just boggled me. Many things boggled me. One, that she had had that experience for a long time. Mm -hmm. Two, that she was telling me 
like, why on earth is she telling me this? And she told it to me out of the blue. It wasn't even in context to what we were going, okay. what we were talking about. But that was the catalyst that God in his mercy used. I went home, marveled at why she had told me and what she had told me. And when I woke up the following morning, Holy Spirit laid deep, deep within my heart the need to confess to her my mm -hmm. struggle. Okay. And that was the beginning of this cascade of spiritual events in my life that led to deliverance for me. And so I always start with my clients, with the need to confess your sin. As scripture says, confess your sin to one another so that you may be healed. We have to expose this monster, whether it's foreign or whatever other secret sin that we cherish in our hearts. We have to expose it and do not underestimate the power of private, wonderful, close confession. The Lord has used that in my life because when I when when I came out of it and he told me I needed to tell her, I had no problem telling her because she'd already been very open and vulnerable with me in a related matter. Sexual sins are very hidden, private sins, right? So she had been open and vulnerable to share hers. So I felt open and safe and vulnerable to share with her. Mm. But down the road, Holy Spirit would start saying, hey, I need you to talk to this person about this. And I'd say, are you kidding me right now, Holy Spirit? <laughs> Why on earth would I do that? And he gave me this very clear list of people that I needed to talk to about it. I wanted nothing to do with that in the name of Jesus. I, I was, <laughs> I mean, nothing to do with that. And it was interesting because at that point, I experienced this bottlenecking. It was almost like a strangulation spiritually where I, I tried to pray and my prayers just fell flat on the floor. I, I described that in detail in, in mapping in Delilah's lap. It was like the Lord just pressed the brakes and pulled over on the roadside and said, when you're ready, you let me know. Well, here's a, a phrase that you use, and it seems almost contradictory to how you used it. You want us to confess our sins, expose the sins that we cherish in our hearts. I, I, I am very confused right now. Help me understand that. Ephesians chapters four and five talk in detail about our works of darkness versus walking in the light and how we used to have works of darkness that are shameful even to mention what was done in darkness. Mm. And now here's Holy Spirit saying, but you are no longer children of darkness. And the other beauty, beautiful thing that I love to compare us to Samson is that the name Samson means the light. And there's another beautiful comparison with us. Jesus calls us the light. We are children of light. 
We are the light of the world. And so, Diane, as children of the light, we walk in the light. We, uh, Ephesians 5.11 says, expose the works of darkness. But the word cherish is the one I'm having the problem with. Ooh, that's a good one. When we cherish sin in our heart, we have taken a habit and pretty much adopted it and made it very comfortable in our lives. So if I have a gambling habit, if I secretly view porn or go out with prostitutes or, or if there's incest in the home, those are sins that the sinner cherishes, nurtures, harbors in the heart. That's the cherishing part. I, I, I'm still, it's so hard for me. To, to, cherish is such a beautiful word and I don't want to attach it to the word it's, sin. It is. But I know, I, 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 ugh. And that's why we know that the angel poses, that the devil poses as an angel of light. And light is beautiful and attractive and wonderful. And the perversion is that he takes this hideous thing, whatever it is. Speaking of cigarettes, remember how you you just you talked about my experience um, with the pornographic with, with the erotica, and how is it that something that's so disgusting then becomes then grabs you? Think of cigarettes and the first time a person smokes. Everyone <laughs> goes like, oh, that was the best thing I've ever tasted." How in your right mind would you go back to that habit? It's unthinkable. Right. And that is the power of sin. And the other power of sin is that it's deceptive. Is that it starts off as this friend. It starts off as meeting a need. And very quickly, it's a snare. And that's another word picture that I used in napping in Delilah's lap. It's a snare. And you don't bait a fish or you don't bait an animal you're going to trap with something that's not attractive to it. No, you put good expensive Tillamook cheese on a mousetrap to bait it. And so the enemy gives us beautiful, wonderful things to bait us. And if we fall for it, we're trapped. Well, I think that using maybe the word cherish when I'm thinking like I cherish my granddaughters, I yes. want to protect them. Yes. I, I idolize them. I, I adore them. And maybe that's part of it. We don't realize that in some way, these addictions and sins we have, that we're doing the same thing. Are we protecting them from other people knowing about them? Are we just storing it so deeply because it's like, that's a part of me that I don't want anyone to further harm or hurt? Or take away. I don't want I don't want somebody to take this aspect of my life away. In my new book that I'm writing, it's called The Addiction Freedom Formula. I talk about what's a, a crappy exchange, I call it. Okay. And, and I have us go through and analyze what are things that you say you value in your life? Oh, I cherish my grandchildren, I value my job, I value my home, I value experiences like this, I value um all these wonderful things that we actually do cherish in our lives. But then I have us come back and look at our habit and what our habit is costing us. It's costing us financial problems. I mean, if you think of the scandals that have happened 
among pastors, among um, uh, uh, political leaders, business executives who were caught in horrific sexual scandals mm -hmm. and the problems that arise from that. You're saying that you value this, I value my family, I value my business, it's been a family business for generations, I value my reputation, I value my income, I value this, 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 and that. But I am doing things over here that compromise what I'm saying I value. Okay. That's the crappy exchange. How is this substance, this behavior, being chosen repeatedly over the things I say I value the most? In reality, I cherish that more than I cherish this. That, thank you. Now, <laughs> now my my two sides of my brain can connect and not give me a headache to say Here's that. That's the truth. That's, that's the truth. truth. Here's yeah. another picture. I'll paint a picture for the mom whose child is addicted to electronics. Um, my 16-year-old will sit at the computer and he's doing a video game. And grandma walks in the door. Now, if he, if we were look look at this list, we'll say, what, what do you cherish in your life? What do you think of grandma? Oh, I love my grandma. She's the best. She's fun. She loves me. I love spending time with her. Sounds like me. Right? <laughs> but I'll tell you what, Diane, Grandma Diane. If you walk in the door and your grandson James is on electronics, it's, hi, Grandma, and right back to it. Yes, yes, right? yes. So we experience that and we realize there's another crappy exchange. I know James in his little mind, even if he was six years old, he would know he cherishes Grandma. More than electronics? Oh, yeah, way more than electronics. But the outward behavior is this crappy exchange. You are choosing your electronics right now over spend, even giving grandma a, a three three minutes of, hi grandma, how are you doing? It's good to see you, good to have you, right? Or yes, he'll say, I cherish obeying my mom. And he knows that the rule is when I call, please come immediately, I need you. But he does the crappy exchange of, just a minute, I'll be right there. Five minutes later, I'm still waiting. So that's the cherishing aspect that I think is so important for us to understand. Well, I think that when we, we first started having the discussion about dopamine, that with these the systems and these habits and these substance, they get large doses of dopamine with little effort, but to get up out of the chair and get that hug dopamine hit, which is just a little one, ah, the no, exchange okay. just doesn't seem to be worth the effort. Compare. So this is, this is very much an education that we have to be immersed in to understand what's going on within our brain, within our systems, within our society, so that we can break free of it. Yes. Like it's, we're not bad people. We are people, as you said, we just haven't learned how to, I don't know the word, we haven't learned how to control our pleasure. Absolutely. We haven't learned how to position our pleasure in the right direction that we've allowed this little primitive part of our brain to take over and control us and we don't even realize that we've been entrapped it's like these little slippery slope steps that we take that all of a sudden saying how did we get here 
How did we get here? I find that a lot. And it's it's interesting too, Diane, because when I when I teach these courses, I'll teach, I'll have parents come to me who are struggling with um, their child or a spouse who's having trouble with a partner facing an addiction. But so frequently when I start this study of the soul, that's really important for us to understand what our soul is because that's what God falls in love with. That's what God redeems. Jesus saves our souls. So we have right. to understand what is our soul. We have, a lot of us have no idea. I, when I started this, I didn't know what a soul was. I would have sputtered maybe 10 sec seconds worth of gobbledygook to describe a soul. And so it's important that we understand the soul because that's what we have to guard. How do you guard a territory when you don't even know the length and the breadth of that territory? It's imperative that we learn what our souls are. Well, I think, too, when you, you talk about it, Satan's after our soul, and so is God after our soul. That's how precious it is. There's a spiritual warfare going after the this thing that we call our soul. So it must be important. It's you very know, we're fighting, or we're having wars over oil, or wars yes. over gold, or wars over diamond, or wars over power. Yeah. It's saying how how important that is, how precious that is to us, how cherished it is to us. So we're yeah. having a spiritual warfare over these souls that are ours. Each one of us has a soul. And what we have to choose is whose side am I fighting on with my every choice? Yes. Am I fighting the Lord's battle or am I fighting on the enemy's side? and aiding his side. So when you think of Samson, I love going back to Samson. What is Samson doing? Napping on Delilah's lap. She is the enemy. What are we doing all comfortable with the enemy? And I love the, the definition of the, the word Delilah. Okay. It means to weaken. It means to pour out. It means to bring down. So when I ask my clients or my listeners, who is your Delilah? It may be that sugar. It may be a cigarette. It may be fentanyl. It may be over-exercising. It may be erotica. That's who your Delilah is. You need to realize that this entity is not your friend. You need to see her in a different way, whoever she is. This is Delilah to me. And the plans that Delilah had for Samson were to steal, kill, destroy Samson. Right. Those are the exact same plans that your Delilah of choice, whoever she is, has for you. Well, I That's love that the, 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 when you look at the words, because Samson, you said, meant delight light. or the light. 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 And then yes. we have, and we, and Delilah is there to weaken the light. So we all have this beautiful light inside of us and this delilah this sin this addiction this weakness call it what you name is mm -hmm. there to just dim that light and snuff it out and you can see people you can feel it's dimming it's dimming it's dimming it's dimming because as you said they're making these crappy choices 
Absolutely. So is it is it that recognition of what's going on inside of them, themselves and in, in their brain and admitting that there is this sin that they need to confess? Is that the road um, to redemption or the road to recovery? What would you call it? It's the, the pathway to. We're closing that pathway to the addiction. Now we're choosing a different pathway. That's a big step in getting on that road and really it is a road and so what we need is a road map and what i have are milestones on this road map that i guide my clients through that um have to do with deliverance and it's all scriptural so on our road to recovery we need a road map okay and scripture is our road map because scripture describes who we are and what we are about that's where we find our identity, and that's where we find our purpose. That's where we find our power. So it's imperative that we use scripture to walk this walk of pleasing God. And so for our deliverance, confession is a huge first step in the process. So that's one of those milestones that we need to look at. Others include understanding shame biblically we are in a time and day when culture tells us that shame tells you that you're a bad person for doing bad things and therefore we don't want shame but that's not biblical at all that's popular culture but that's not scripture right scripture talks about the place for shame we're not to live in shame but shame is an emotion that we experience so that we can correct the wrong behavior that we're doing. In Napping in Delilah's Lap, I have a whole chapter on shame itself. Now, you can have productive shame or toxic shame. The world does not distinguish between toxic and productive shame. Scripture does. And productive shame means I need to make things right. If I hurt you, Diane, if I steal from you, I need to experience shame. If I don't experience shame after stealing from you, that's that's sociopathic behavior. That's inappropriate. I need to feel shame when I do wrong things. Otherwise, why would I want to make it right? And people who are shameless are pathological. For people who are selling this whole thing, you shouldn't be ashamed about anything that you do. You can do whatever you want. Is shame... Is shame and guilt the same thing, or have we just changed the word? Shame and guilt are not the same thing. Guilt pretty much means you did it or you didn't do it. Did you do it or did you not? Are you guilty or are you not guilty, right? Shame is a resultant emotion, a feeling as a result of your status of guilt or innocence. So if I am guilty, if I did steal your, who knows what, your pretty uh, yellow cushions, <laughs> I should feel shame about, I am guilty of having done it. And I should feel shame for having done it. Okay. The problem comes in a culture that tells you, oh, you don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to feel shame for that. You're not a bad person. You do you. Doesn't make sense. You go steal as much as you want. You you take whatever you want, whatever you see. You just go after it. Okay, so that that helps. So 
There's confession. There's an understanding that can cause what shame is. And that, and I feel that it is when we're feeling ashamed or, or bad about something, it's telling us something. It's like our GPS. It's something inside of us saying, this isn't right. Fix it. Fix it. Do something about it. And that's why you even seeing, you know, erotica pornography at a young age, you felt shame because there was something inside of you saying, this isn't right. Something needs to be fixed. Something needs to be healed. Something needs to be done so that you can be released from it. So shame is a gift that God gives us so that we can make amends, so that we can make restitution, so we can fix things and make it right. So I can come back to you and say, I used a really rude tone when I spoke to you, Diane. That was completely inappropriate. Please forgive me. And that's the roadmap is always to reconciliation. And shame comes about so that we can be reconciled to each other and to God. That's why he's giving you shame. It's this discomfort. It's like he's lighting a fire under you so you can move because he knows how we are. That if we don't have an impetus, you know, if we don't have a, a stimulus, we probably will just leave things be. But he lights a fire to move us in the right direction to reconciliation with him. He is the lover of our souls and it tears him up when we are separated and sin separates us from him. He wants us to come back and be reconciled always. And always. it separates us from one another too. So here is a question. Yeah. If we're not using shame as a way to course correct, are we then going back to the shameful thing that we're doing to make us feel better again? We don't want to feel shame. So let me go feel this other feeling because that feels so much better. And again, I don't have to do anything. That's a brilliant insight because addiction is an escape to this habit or substance for pleasure, right? And so the shame becomes another pain. We're escaping pain. So you're right. The system works very well. The enemy has that figured out just right because now it doesn't even have to be whatever original pain you were experiencing. Now it's this additional pain of shame that you have to medicate with your habit. So you're correct there that yes, shame does become another pain that we have to medicate. So by making amends. Yes. Is that the third step? I, I'm just looking at, so making amends and that's through like with other people. And I think that there's so much of, you know, whenever we're trying to course correct and do something right, the devil can take that shame and then then it's then we're doing something to ourselves that we have to sort of there's forgiveness seeking forgiveness from god seeking forgiveness from someone else that we might have caused hurt to but then seeking forgiveness from ourselves from being from choosing making these choices that have made our life really difficult absolutely and other people's lives yeah. Um, so repentance is another huge milestone. And that does entail confession. That does entail making amends, forgiveness within that. And I love the scriptural definitions of even the forgiveness process or this whole repentance process 
which is a turning about. Right. It's not a 360, it's 180, where um, I read somewhere that in the, in the early church, when they were going through confession, they would face one direction and state what it was that they had done. And then when it came time to make a declaration for a desire to walk anew, they would turn and face the exact opposite direction, seek forgiveness of it, and their aspiration to walk differently from darkness to light. And I do love that it is repentance is a turning. Yes. So it's not, you know, three sexies, you said it's we're 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 turn we're using that substance as an idol. And then we're turning our back on that idol. And then we're facing God, who we should be idolizing. The lover of our soul. Yes. 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 So the the three pieces that I use powerfully to speak to our relationship and our giftings from God are he created us for pleasure, for intimacy, and for glory. And I think sexual sin in particular hijacks those three areas very powerfully because it gives you pleasure. It gives you an apparition of intimacy and this glorious experience, this euphoria that you experience from it. But again, that's all being stolen from our relationship that we can only get with God. Right. And so when we think of the flood of chemicals that our bodies give us during sexual encounters, I really believe that those are glimpses of what heaven is like. I really do. I believe that heaven is all about pleasure, intimacy, and glory. And that the sexual experience is God's most clear gift to humanity of his relationship with us now and in eternity. And so I believe that all aspects of the sexual act are ways that God reaches out to us and interacts with us and prepares us for seeing him when we do see him with our eyes one day. Well, he he created us and him as his image and likeness and gave yeah. us the power to create as well another human being. It, it's such a beautiful gift he's given us. He's given us yeah. the power to do something that he did. Yeah. You yeah. know, in that that part of uh, that part of uh, creation, I I don't even know where to stop or how to stop because this I could you know this has been such um, a delightful to- discussion on such a hard topic, but such an educational way to sort of pour it out. I love analogies, so, so thank you, Doctor Hannah, in giving us analogies so that we can really start seeing simplifying something that's difficult so if you had to just put a end note on this conversation what would you give to our listeners i would give to your our wonderful listeners that you are as samson you are filled with the holy spirit you are purpose god has purpose and work for you to do that he created for you before the creation of the world. You are powerful. Oh, are you powerful? 
You are the light of the world. Why are you carousing with Delilah? What are you doing napping on Delilah's lap? And I say, run, Christian. Don't walk. Run to the lover of your soul. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Anna. This was absolutely delightful and uh, better than I could have ever hoped or dreamed for. So I just want to thank you again. I'm going to share with our listeners information of how to get in touch with you, how to um, get uh, your books, and just to, um, this was just, thank you. What a gift you've just given all of us. I thank you. And that warms my heart to know that my vulnerability and my labor and even my childhood pain is not in vain. And that was my desire when I went into this and had this difficult conversation with the Lord is that your pain will not have been wasted. I want your pain to to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. So thank you for being a part of that. And this is the purpose of the hope station because there is hope no matter what the trauma, no matter what the pain is. But part of it is we really have to peel it back and say what's causing it and knowing that there is a God-given, God-inspired solution for this. We're too much. We're looking outside of the Bible. We're looking outside of God for solutions and they're not working. And what's the evidence? Pornography and addiction is skyrocketing out of control. It's out of control. And I think that one of the things that people who are faced with addictions once want most is feeling that they're in control. And we're sold that God is a controller where he is a freer. And these addictions, the power of the enemy is who is really our prison guards, the the cell masters, whatever you want to call them. That's the opposite. But we're being lied to and we're being propaganda is saying something so different than the truth. And I just want to be a voice of hope that I know my life and the pain and challenges I've been through, that he has been the way, the truth and the life. So thank you. Thank you so much for pulling into the hope station. Wasn't that a great episode? My hope is that this episode brought you hope. Do you want to be a hope giver? I hope so. And how you can do that is to share this podcast, post the episode on social media, write a review or rate the podcast. This helps engagement and boosts the podcast out to other listeners in need of hope. So thank you. Thank you for participating. Thank you for helping. Thank you for being a valued listener. And my hope is that you have a great week.